0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We must note as we start the passing of a music legend this past week. The seemingly but evidently not quite immortal Chuck Berry left us. Sacramento writer Jackson Griffith posted on Facebook this past week that with apologies to Elvis, wherever he may be, we've just now lost the real king of rock and roll. And indeed, he was that. I think we will devote our second segment today, perhaps in its entirety, to the passing of Chuck Berry. We can do that because we have, well, the freedom to do so. We are not told how to produce Radio Parallax, and so we just call them as we see them, as you well know, dear listener. As always, we thank you for the feedback which you give us, and at this point in time, I need to ask for a bit of a favor from you, the listenership. I would like to know what you know and what your friends know about the deep state. I've been quite shocked this past week to realize that although the The subject is now on the lips of the public, or at least in the writings of certain commentators. It does appear that, uh, well, most people don't seem to know too much about it. I've queried friends of mine in the last week just out of curiosity to say, What do you know about the deep state? And two people answered, The what? A third person who was familiar with the term, said that he just listened to a program on NPR with Neil Conan where they talked about how, well, you know, people are using that term, but we don't have a deep state here like they do in Turkey. In fact, the term does go back to the rebellion uh, led by Kemal Ataturk, the Ottoman Empire broke up. He created a secular state. He's, of course, the father of, of modern Turkey. And as he set out to revamp society, there was in place a deep state was translated from the Turkish word, which means that, and referred to basically a cabal of people whose mission, as they saw it, was to shape the Turkish society and a necessary step in and change the course of events. If you look around, you'll see that there are currently articles in the Los Angeles Times, in the New Yorker, in the Atlantic, in a lot of other places telling you, well, reassuring you, that uh, there is no American deep state. Well, listeners to this program will no doubt be aware that we don't agree with that perspective. And we have been privileged on the show to have spoken at least once with Peter Dale Scott from UC Berkeley, who's done a wonderful job of explaining to the public how things really work. We would like very much to bring Professor Scott back onto the program in the future. But in the meantime, I think what we need to do is direct you to some of his work that explains the facts of political life. One place you may want to begin was an interview conducted for Pacifica Radio. It aired on December 2nd of 2014. It was titled The American Deep State an interview with Peter Dale Scott for the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. Peter Dale Scott's newest book in 2014 was titled The American Deep State. Wall Street, Big Oil, and the Attack on U.S. Democracy. We highly suggest his writings, this book in particular, and as an intro, why don't you start with the radio interview conducted by Mickey Huff and Peter Phillips of Project Censored. We have so much that we want to say about this topic because some people are pointing out that the Trump administration appears to be at war with America's deep state. Well, those are the commentators that accept that there is such a thing as the deep state. But what has shocked me in recent months is the position being taken by investigative journalists we respect very much, people like Glenn Greenwald, Matt Taibbi, Robert Parry, David Talbot, and a few others I'm not thinking of at the moment, but they basically have been very skeptical about this idea of Russian interference in the 2016 election, and have pointed out that the sources on this are perhaps a bit dodgy. I was a little surprised to see Glenn Greenwald quote from uh, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange in assuring the public that there, no, there's no way that we got these leaks that were so damaging to Hillary Clinton from the Russians, A lot of people have asked, and we might ask as well, how is it that if WikiLeaks has so many good sources in so many places, they just didn't seem to come up with anything damaging about Mr. Donald Trump? Or if they did, they elected not to use it. Now, the the question of Russian interference with the election has, without a doubt, gone mainstream. There are calls throughout Congress and through the nation's media for a thorough investigation of this. FBI Director Comey, as you're no doubt aware, went before the public earlier this week and said, Yeah, we're looking into that. We, uh, we hope they do, although we must confess that our um, confidence in blue ribbon commissions that investigate things is, is not that high. Nevertheless, we do believe the effort should be made. We do note one fascinating little wrinkle to this story of Russian involvement, which was posted by. Peter Dale Scott on, uh, on Facebook, wherein he took a look at this latest WikiLeak trove that is embarrassing the hell out of the CIA because it shows how they're able to bypass security systems and, if necessary, say, turn on the, <laughs> the camera in your television at home and turn on your microphones, uh, place throughout the house and listen in and see what you're doing. We've been talking about that sort of thing in this program for years, and some are upset by it some not. But at any rate, buried in this treasure trove of uh, revelations about what our spy agencies do, was the datum in a program titled UMBRAGE, all in caps, that um, they had the ability, when they go in and hack into this system or that, to leave the fingerprints behind that indicate that someone else was responsible. When you hear stories about hackers from Russia or China or wherever that uh, got into, like, you know, Wells Fargo Bank or whatever it may be, um, they're able to identify, generally, the source of the attack by these fingerprints. I'm not a tech person. I can't explain how that's done, but I know it is done. And it certainly is interesting to note that uh, there is an ability out there to mislead investigators as to who the perps were. So does this mean the Russians weren't doing any hacking? It was somebody else? Well, it's possible, and we are just, I think, more confused than ever, but we're going to do what we can to sort this all out in the near future. Well, as best we can. Anyway, we'd like you again to send us a note. Um, if we can get 10 or 12 people to respond to this, we would, we would enjoy it very much. Uh, telling us what response you got when you asked three of your friends, what they know about the deep state. And then drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. You know, we don't really want to make this show week in and week out about current events, but there's so much going on surrounding President Donald Trump that we need to devote some time to it. But doggone it, I don't think I want to do that today. I think I'm going to put that off a week. Well, not completely. Let's just do a quick run-through of some things that have surfaced and then come back to them later. As you may have noticed, the Trump administration is seeking to um, cut out federal funding for Meals on Wheels. Yeah, I guess we're talking about something like $800 million uh, that the federal government used to support Meals on Wheels. It's only a small percentage of the money that uh, the organization does take in. And we do note that with this news about um, the potential cutting back of the service, that the private donations to it have seen a surge to 50 times their usual rate. Which, uh, which has to be good news. And what may not be such good news is the fact that PBS is now celebrating its 50th anniversary with a very uncertain future since Donald Trump apparently wants to cut funding of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This was tried, but fortunately failed before under the Bush administration. Trump is the first one to go after the National Endowment for the Arts, also the National Endowment for the Humanities. Should be kept in mind that the three agencies we're talking about combined receive about $740 million, with an M, annually in tax dollars, which of course is a rather small fraction of the $4 trillion, with a T, trillion dollar federal budget. Trump's FCC chairman is a guy that needs to be watched. Ajit Pai has moved aggressively to scrap rules that would have opened up the cable box market to more comp- competition and also discounted high-speed internet for low-wage households. Of course, what he really has in mind is scrapping net neutrality, which is really a lousy word to use because people don't really know what it means, I think, and they fall asleep when you even bring it up. What it means is that internet service providers like T-Mobile, AT&T, and Verizon can charge other folks more for premium services, which, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what that's going to mean is that you and I, the regular old internet customers, are likely to expect some content to stream more slowly, while well, those companies that are partnering with your mobile provider are going to find that their content streams extra fast. And there is some pretty weird stuff going on over in Russia, but we're going to just drop the whole Trump and Russia thing for the time being and begin the show as we like to do (laughs) with quotes and quips, etc. Let's go to a Bosnian proverb for our quote of the day, which is, who lies for you will lie against you. And for our quip, we'll use a Yiddish proverb, which is, truth is the safest lie. For our good news item of the week, let's go with this. For the first time ever, bottled water has overtaken soda as the most popular beverage in the country. Americans bought 12.8 billion gallons of bottled water in 2016, up almost 9% since the year before. If you're keeping score, we also drank 12.4 billion gallons of carbonated soft drinks. I suppose this is encouraging that people are drinking water instead of sugar water. But the, the little item I saw on... But the item that I'm reading related to this story shows, next to the text, a small bottle of Fiji water, which we cannot resist reminding you, is sold to you from Fiji by Stuart and Linda Resnick, the same people that take more of California's potable water to put on their crops than does the city of Los Angeles. We hope you caught that National Geographic special, Water and Power, a California heist, which did show how, thanks to California's misguided water policies, we have places in the state that are out of water. The wells have run dry. They pumped it all out. John Q. Citizen cannot go to his backyard and get water from his well. Thank God the Resnicks will sell them some Fiji water. Our anecdote for the week is as follows. After mistaking a humor piece for a news story, Chinese news sites reported that President Trump had covered the White House phones in tinfoil. This evidently comes from the New Yorker satirist Andy Borowitz, who mocked Trump's claim that former President Obama had wiretapped him by writing the sleepless, bathrobe clad president personally supervised the late-night foil installation while ordering the Secret Service to check every room in the White House for Obama. Evidently, Borowitz's column was widely circulated by Chinese state-run Xinhua News Agency. All right, stat number one of the day. FedEx says its vehicle fleet goes through nearly twice as many tires as it did 20 years ago because of America's pothole-ridden roads and highway system. If you've driven around California of late, you know this is no joke. Evidently, FedEx vehicles logged more than 2 billion miles on U.S. roads last year, so they ought to know. Stat number two is one we missed from last month, but Politico.com noted at that time that during his first two weeks in office, President Trump had attacked at least 23 people, places, and things on his Twitter account, including Women's March protesters, Senators John McCain, Lindsey Graham, and Chuck Schumer, Mexico, Iran, and the failing media. All right, right, at this point, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. All right, according to The Week magazine... And we are grateful for The Week magazine every time we do this program. It was a good week last week for finding true hate. With with the news that a new dating app is promising to match potential mates based on the things they both despise instead of shared interests. Dubbed Hater, the new service is based on research showing that people are more inclined to bond over shared negative opinions than over likes. It wasn't, on the other hand, a bad week for passing on life skills to the next generation with the news that a new study has found that only 20% of 6- to 12-year-olds, at least in Oklahoma, could read the time from an analog clock. 12-year-olds, 7th graders. Let's see, the big hand is on the 10, and the little hand is on the 3. God, I don't know. Mr. McMillan says he's just glad that at age 12 they're still in school in Oklahoma. And finally, it was an ugly week this past week for sorting out fake news with the news that Facebook is planning to flag quote-unquote fake news. Yes, the social media giant has started tagging certain stories with a disputed stamp as part of its fight against misinformation on its site. If a flagged article shows up in your news feed, it will be accompanied by links to posts on fact-checking sites PolitiFact and Snopes, Explaining why it's not true, but of course it takes time for a story to receive a disputed mark Peter Kafka in Recode.net notes that Facebook users first have to report the piece as bogus Or the site's algorithms have to spot something suspicious The story is then vetted by media organizations that have volunteered to do free fact-checking Which of course all means it can take several days before even a patently false story gets tagged So I guess if Andy Borowitz wants to get more items onto the Xinhua News Agency in China, he probably should now go through Facebook. You can probably count on a several-day cushion there. This might be a good time to turn up an article that we would have referred to last November if we'd been on the air, which was that there was quite a bit of pushback over a scheme that was going to offer insurance discounts based on Facebook data. This hubbub began when Admiral Insurance in the UK announced... First car quote, which would offer savings on car insurance for people buying or driving their first car. All they had to do was let the company analyze their Facebook profile, which would generate data that they would then use to calculate a discount according to their personality. As I believe we made mention to in some previous show, after an outcry from privacy activists, Facebook intervened just two hours before the scheme was to launch on November 2nd. It assured users it would not allow its guidelines surrounding user data to be violated. Yeah, this is the same company that's uh, selling your personal information uh, algorithms to see what you like so that, you know, they can place their ads. Uh, These are maybe not the best custodians of your personal information, but I did like the headline that appeared in the the new scientist accompanying the story that said, You are judged by what you post online which seems that, you know, that would go without saying. So sometimes when I'm looking at Facebook, I'm just astonished by what people do choose to post online as regards personal information. It seems we've become a nation of Jerry Springer Show participants. Now, we don't, as a rule, rely on the San Jose Mercury for many of our news stories. Uh, One reason may be that it is such a... An incredible cheerleader for the tech industry, which we have reservations about. But I did have to laugh at the Sunday business section of uh, last week's Merck, which, <laughs> which noted in big, bold headlines that you can get now a digital upgrade for your fridge. There's a subheadline which I think bordered on advertising saying, appliance of the future is now. Yes, apparently a lot of folks are going to be put off by the price, but, you know, if you just have to have a refrigerator that will leave notes for you, or play music on your Wi-Fi radio, or have a touchscreen display, or have at least one camera inside the refrigerator, or we'll use artificial intelligence technology, or we'll check the contents for you to let you know if you need to pick up milk or eggs on the way home, well, this may be the way to go for you. The article quoted a Dinesh Kithany as saying that smart refrigerators open a whole new world for getting content and services. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't need my refrigerator to supply me with either content or services except to keep my stuff cold. We do note that the whole fake news thing has gotten so bad that they're now teaching classes in high school so that students can figure out how to sort out the fake from the real i suppose it is a bit of a relief to note that according to the uh, bay area newsgroup.com that um students from the roosevelt middle school after being directed by their teacher to look into the help save the pacific northwest tree octopus site that after students examined the extensive colorful site he was able to tell them that well in fact the octopus and the site both were fake there really is no pacific northwest tree octopus we do have to pause at this point and ask how much time do you think they invested in determining that there's no such thing as the pacific tree octopus and another dubious news coming from the bay area and another dubious news coming from the bay area we would note that Oakland Raiders owner Mark Davis has stopped talking to the city of Oakland about his team in favor of taking it up with Las Vegas. Yes, apparently down in Las Vegas, they've cut a deal with the team to build them their own st- stadium, blah, blah, blah. That uh, age-old scam that municipalities, like Sacramento, seem to keep falling for. I guess the thing that amazes me the most is that Raider fans are going to continue to be Raider fans even when they moved the team a second time anybody remember the Los Angeles Raiders Super Bowl winners back in 82 as i recall actually let's let's do our own little test of fake news there was a headline recently i noticed uh, i don't know on i guess my slash, splash page um noting <laughs> that that it may be that extraterrestrials are able to move between the planets orbiting the TRAPPIST-1 red dwarf star in the constellation Aquarius. As reported on Radio Parallax and elsewhere, we now know that there are no less than seven planets, quite a little solar system orbiting TRAPPIST-1. And while it is hard to dispute the possibility that because a couple of these planets orbit so close to one another that extraterrestrials could make the trip between them, we would hasten to add that uh, at TRAPPIST-1, as is every place else in the universe, there remains no evidence for extraterrestrials. We're not saying they're not out there, we're just saying there's just no evidence for them. So although we cannot rule out a headline like extraterrestrials may be moving from planet to planet around the TRAPPIST-1 star, we might compare it to a headline such as Flying saucer may have crashed on White House Lawn. I mean there's not a lot of good evidence for it, but but it but it may have. All right, let's get a little more scientific and uh, looking at uh, extrasolar planets. We know that Proxima Centauri has one. It's been called Proxima Centauri B. Proxima Centauri is, in fact, the closest known star to our own. Sadly, it is so dim that it is not visible to the naked eye. There are, in fact, no red dwarfs in the sky, which you can see with the naked eye, which you may be pleased to note that it has been studied intensely. We now know that the little red dwarf has a seven-year activity phase, corresponding to our own sun's 11-year cycle of going through sunspots, etc. And, uh, the star takes roughly 83 days to rotate on its axis. During Proxima Centauri's stellar maximum, one-third of its face is covered in star spots. At our sun's maximum, by contrast, sunspots cover less than 1% of the solar surface. Proxima Centauri is what's called a flare star, meaning every so often it erupts with raging flares and outbursts of X-rays and UV uh, radiation. This would not be so good for... uh, any living things on Proxima Centauri B, which people have had high hopes for because we know that not only is it uh, uh, roughly the size of the Earth, it also orbits in the Goldilocks zone where water on the surface would be liquid. We will do our best to keep you updated on stories about both Proxima Centauri and Proxima Centauri B. In planetary news much closer to home, we would note recent headlines in the Washington Post uh, and other places <laughs> informing us that, per a new definition, we may add 102 planets to our solar system. Under the new criteria, which is being bandied about, which I think boils down to, is it round? Which, by the way, reminds Mr. Millen and I of that great David Letterman running gag of, will it float? That's one Letterman might have taken up. Paul, Paul, is it round? Yeah, yeah, I I think it is round. Now, we admit Pluto, which got demoted from planetary status, turned out to be an amazingly cool place out there at the edge of the solar system. But when it's all said and done, we're going to have to side with Mike Brown of Caltech. Professor Brown, who we tried to get on this program a while ago, but he proved to be a little bit difficult, uh, is a professor of planetary astronomy, at Caltech, he wrote a rather pithy piece for New Scientist, which I think I should quote from. Said Mike Brown, a small but vocal group, led by Alan Stern, the scientist in charge of NASA's New Horizons mission, is trying to reverse the direction made over a decade ago to remove Pluto's planetary status. Why? Has anything changed? No. The proposal is essentially the same case made for keeping its status that was rejected in 2006. The problem is that the proposal would mean defining all round objects smaller than stars as planets. Pluto would be back, but would bring a lot of baggage with it, like our own moon. Today, most of us would say that the moon is not a planet. But 500 years ago, when people thought the moon and sun revolved around the Earth, they were just two of seven, quote, planets, unquote, along with Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. When the Copernican Revolution in the 16th century, with the Copernican Revolution in the 16th century, the definition of planet changed. They were now things going around the sun. The moon was the one thing going around Earth. So, as Brown points out, the moon got demoted and has remained demoted ever since. Oh, we should mention, by the way, that Mike Brown wrote a book titled, How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. In the book, as he does in this essay, he explains the whole history of the discovery of asteroids, the discovery of moons around other planets, etc., before revealing that he, in fact, was the person that discovered Eris, a body roughly the size of Pluto, out in what's called the Kuiper Belt. When the New Horizons spacecraft got to Pluto, it discovered that Pluto actually was a little bit larger than Eris. But as Mike Brown likes to point out, studies have shown that Eris, in fact, has significantly more mass than does Pluto. To pick up the essay, Pluto and Eris belong to a new population of small objects beyond Neptune. This distinction is critical for understanding how our solar system came to be and why it is the way it is. If all round things are planets, regardless of where they are, then the moon, round and five times as massive as Pluto, that's something people don't realize, our own moon is five times as massive as Pluto, is our closest planetary neighbor. You can't have a scientifically consistent definition of planet, including Pluto, but not the moon. It's hard to imagine much support for such an odd proposition. (laughs) He concludes by noting the New Horizons flyby showed that Pluto is a fascinating and worth studying world. Brown concludes by noting that the New Horizons flyby showed that Pluto is fascinating and worth studying. Instead of mistaking fascinating for must be a planet... (laughs) Let's instead celebrate what this little world tells us about how much there is still to learn about our solar system. And by the way, in our own solar system, there is no evidence that extraterrestrials are moving from planet to planet. And finally, we have this item, which I think we'll manage to combine. Both our uh, blathering on about President Trump and our discussion to follow about Chuck Berry. The person bridging that gap is, believe it or not, Rolling Stones guitarist, Keith Richards. As we'll talk about shortly, the Rolling Stones, as well as the Beatles, the Beach Boys, the Grateful Dead, and just about everybody covered Chuck Berry tunes. And you will no doubt see pictures on the web of Mr. Richards and Mr. Berry happily playing together. Mr. McMillan does note that if you keep looking at videos, you'll probably find a few where the two of them are arguing, like mad. we're pretty sure that even when Mr. Richards perhaps did not get along perfectly with Mr. Barry, he did not pull a knife on him, as he reportedly did with Donald Trump. Well, when you read the news story, it's it's more along the lines of nearly pulled a knife. But here is the story, as reported by Tony Hicks. During the Rolling Stones' big comeback tour in 1989, Donald Trump sponsored one of the Stones' shows at Atlantic City's Boardwalk Hall. That's according to Salon.com. But the deal was that the Stones didn't want to deal with Mr. Trump. They didn't want him involved in his promotion. They didn't even want him at the show. At some point, Trump went back on his promise. Stones tour manager Michael Cole told Polestar, I get word that I have to come to the press room in the next building. I run into the press room in the next building. And what do you think is happening? There's Donald Trump giving a press conference in our room. Cole reports that when he informed Keith Richards about this, Richards pulled out a knife, slammed it in the table, and says, What the hell do I have you for? Do I have to go over there and fire him myself? One of us is leaving this building, either him or us. Reportedly, and I'm starting to doubt the story a little bit, Michael Cole said that uh, Trump did leave the room, but it didn't end there. Apparently, Trump's goons, a couple of them in trench coats, started putting on gloves, and one started putting on brass knuckles. Cole reportedly then called the band's head of security, who got 40 of the crew with tire irons and hockey sticks and screwdrivers to counter the Trump threat. So, did Keith Richards actually get down to practically rumble with Donald Trump? We don't know. We kind of hope so, but we don't know. Anyway, we certainly can't vouch for this story, but we are tickled by the prospect of Keith Richards mixing it up with Donald Trump piece of musical bed is titled. Let's take a break and come back and talk about music. At least the music of one Chuck Berry. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Don't go away.